I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with activist and healthcare advocate Laura Packard, who credits the Affordable Care Act with saving her life. As Laura was fighting to survive stage four cancer, she was not only fighting for her own life, but for the lives of other Americans with serious life-threatening illnesses. And she was doing so while the Trump administration was fighting to take away healthcare from millions of people. Laura Packard is a survivor in the truest sense of the word. And she's also the founder of Healthcare Voices, a nonprofit organization which organizes people with serious medical conditions to achieve affordable, comprehensive healthcare. Laura and I discuss how the Biden administration has fared so far when it comes to healthcare legislation, including their plans to lower prescription drug prices. And Laura shares her opinion on what she thinks will happen with the reconciliation bill in relation to healthcare policy. So please enjoy my conversation with the founder of Healthcare Voices, Laura Packard. So Laura Packard, welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, thanks for having me. So, yeah, the last time we spoke, I can't remember if it was, you know, I think it was shortly after the Biden administration or the, the 2020 election mm-hmm. and probably post-insurrection. But <laughs> I want to know how you're feeling several months into the Biden administration, just kind of broadly about, you know, the direction they're going with healthcare. care. Uh, well, I'm feeling uh, pretty good. Uh, the administration did a lot more than I was expecting right out of the gate. And uh, they're they're working on even more. So I'm surprisingly optimistic. So, you know, I just want to remind listeners of your story. Like I said, we've, we've spoken before, but I just want to remind them that you credit the ACA with saving your life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now you have your own organization, Healthcare Voices. And so you're training other constituents to tell their stories like you did after, you know, the ACA. And apparently there is a, a role, a powerful role for storytelling in, you know, shaping the debate around healthcare, right? And policy. Mm-hmm. What do you think that role is? Well, I think people matter and uh, legislators pay attention to their constituents. I think that you can reach an elected official with your personal story in some ways much more than a 16-page policy paper and so on. People make these complex issues real and can really motivate somebody to keep fighting. So all of the healthcare pieces that Congress is working on right now are meaningful to at least one legislature on a personal level. For example, uh, Senator Warnock and uh, Senator uh, Ossoff, uh, the newly elected senators in Georgia, they are personally pushing for the provision in Build Back Better that would create a federal program to cover people in the Medicaid gap, which means that there's millions of Americans right now that can't afford health care, and their governors and their conservative state legislatures refuse to expand Medicaid to cover those people, even though this was a part of the Affordable Care Act. And for years and years, low-income people in these states should have had health care, but their, their elected officials refuse to do their job. So Georgia is one of those states. So Georgia's new senators are pushing for a federal solution since Governor Kemp and the Republican legislature in Georgia refused to do their job. Wow. So you said that the Biden administration did some things right out of the gate that that impressed you. What are some of the other things that they've done? Well, they rolled back some of the Trump attacks on the Affordable Care Act and on health care in general. But he also uh, opened a special enrollment period so that people could sign up for health insurance right away instead of waiting until November for the next enrollment period. So they made healthcare more affordable and accessible 
they turned back some of the Trump administration attacks and they opened up the enrollment periods so that people wouldn't have to wait. But that, I think that recently closed, right? Was it August, yes. mid-August? So when is, I've been trying to wade through the enrollment periods. When is the next <laughs> opening? I, I don't know. I know there's a special one coming up in November, right? Well, it's, it's the standard one. In the past few years, under the Trump administration, they cut back the open enrollment periods. And so the way it has been in the last couple of years or so, is November 1st to December 15th. It's proposed to make it November 1st to January 15th. That rule has not gone through yet, but that's something the Biden administration is talking about. So November, and it's now September. So in a little bit, open enrollment for the ACA will reopen. This is such a silly question, but just thinking about that period, you know, November 1st through December 15th, possibly January 15th. Mm -hmm. um, this is so silly. Why do we have any enrollment periods? Why not just make it a rolling enrollment period? You know, I don't know. Uh, well, in some states like California and some others are basically have uh, an open enrollment period all year long due to the pandemic. The reasoning behind having a specific period of time is so that people don't wait until they get sick before they enroll in health insurance. You know, if, if you could enroll anytime, then the thought is that some people just wouldn't pay for health insurance. And, and then once they started feeling sick, they would get it that month. And so that raises the rates for everybody because they haven't paid in to the collective pool. So that's the theory, except in practice, that doesn't really turn out to be so much the case. So this is something that the insurance companies want. And so far, they've gotten it. Uh, but we'll see because the way it turned out this year, open enrollment is going to be for most of the year because they opened it up uh, February 15th and it ran through August 15th. So for most of the year, uh, you were able to sign up for health insurance. And it doesn't look like that has hurt the business model of insurance companies at all. Right. That's what I was thinking. Just instinctively, I was thinking that, you know, does it really hurt insurance companies? Probably not. So let's talk about the plan to cut prescription drug prices, because I know that's one of the things that the Biden administration has recently proposed. What do you know about that? You know, what's the plan there? And is part of this being done via executive order? Well, the Biden administration just released their plan last week, but Congress is working on uh, the reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better bill right now. And the House and the Senate have different approaches. The House has already passed H.R. 3, which is a really far-reaching bill. They passed it, I think it was last year or the year before, uh, where it just went to the Senate to die. So that's their starting point. And then on the Senate side, their starting point was narrower. The Wyden-Grassley bill um, was narrower, covered fewer drugs, would have meant less savings. So they're sort of coming from different points. And we'll see what the finished product looks like, if it's larger or smaller. But both sides, the House and the Senate, and also the president, are really committed to lowering the cost of prescription drugs. So I believe we will see something. It's just a question of how far it will go. Yeah, the U.S. has some of the highest prescription drug prices in the world, really. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm curious as to if you could give us some high-level ideas of what's actually in that package. How exactly will they cut prescription drug prices? And what can constituents expect if that were to pass? Sure. Well, the major thing is right now, Medicare is not allowed to negotiate uh, the cost of prescription drugs. So unlike the VA and other federal agencies that can use their purchasing power, to get bulk discounts. Medicare is forbidden by law from doing that. That was written into the Medicare Part D legislation that George W. Bush shepherded 
so many years ago because obviously he was a friend of big pharma. So uh, they wrote into the law that the government couldn't take advantage of our own purchasing power to save American taxpayers money. So this has been ongoing for years and years. And big pharma's big donations have meant that politicians have not done anything about it, except Now we're finally in a moment where Americans continue and have always supported lowering the cost of prescription drugs because as a problem, this just gets worse and worse every year. But politicians have lacked the will to do something about it. Now they're sort of forced to do something about it because this big package that's full of great things like paid medical leave and lower insurance costs and so on, part of how they're going to pay for it is the savings generated from finally using the government's power to lower the cost of prescription drugs. And so depending on the House and the Senate approach and the Biden administration approach, you know, what exactly it winds up looking like, one of those pieces would allow insurance companies to buy into the same discounts that the government gets from pharma. So this wouldn't necessarily just lower prescription drug prices for seniors on Medicare, but it could lower prescription drug prices that all of us pay. And as you mentioned, we we pay the highest prices in the world for our prescription drugs. So it's about time that Congress did something. You know, of course, that has broad support, right? I mean, who doesn't want to pay Mm -hmm. lower prices for prescription drugs? And, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Big Pharma would lose out on that. I'm Mm -hmm. curious as to what your opinion is in regards to the Senate, you know, because all of these mm-hmm. these bills, they sound great, right? You know, we could talk about mm-hmm. voting rights. We could talk about, you know, reproductive justice. We could talk about so many things. But healthcare is probably going to die in the Senate like a lot of other bills. And I'm just curious as to what your opinion is. Like, we don't know what's going on in the mind of Joe Manchin, just <laughs> mention someone whose mm-hmm. name comes up often. I mean, there have been claims that, you know, he does have ties or has gotten, you know, some donations mm-hmm. from Big Pharma. And just what are your thoughts on that? Well, his daughter works for the company that jacked the price up of EpiPens. So his family has done very well by big, from Big Pharma. But I don't share your belief that this package is a dead on arrival. There are some things that you need to have 60 votes for because of the filibuster. You know, the things you mentioned like voting rights and the, the right to reproductive care, including abortion. So those are things that at least at the moment you need 60 votes for in the Senate. But because of the way this bill is using the reconciliation process, they need 50 votes. And yes, Joe Manchin has come out and said $3.5 trillion is too much. And Kirsten Sinema has, has said disparaging things and so on. But I think at the end of the day, we will have a package. What's included in that package and how big that package is remains to be seen. But I don't believe that either Joe Manchin or Senator Sinema are interested in tanking Biden's presidency and generating the enormous ill will of their own constituents by uh, keeping them from the important things we all need. So I think there will be a bill and it will get passed and signed into law. It's just what all is included is being discussed right now. Um, I, I hope you're right. I hope it gets through. I want to talk about the piece of this that is been done via executive order. And I believe that's included in what's called the executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. Mm-hmm. And so that includes prescription drug prices, as well as some other industries like the telecommunication industry. What do you know about that? The piece of lowering drug prices that's been done via or that's proposed via executive order? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that the Biden administration's interest in attacking monopolies is fantastic because we've seen not just in healthcare but in everything in 
in big tech monopolies, in hospital consolidation. In all of these areas, companies have been able to run amok in the past few years with no guardrails. The FTC has not done anything to stop more accumulation of power as these companies get bigger and bigger until they are, quote unquote, too big to fail. So I think an administration that is bold and is actually trying to break up monopolies instead of encouraging them is going to be huge for American consumers in all facets of our life, not just when it comes to healthcare. So I think that it's easy to put out paper. It's harder to actually enforce. The Trump administration put out a lot of executive orders that like uh, the executive order that was going to theoretically cut the cost of prescription drugs. And then that ended up not didn't pass legal muster. It wasn't implemented correctly. It, it went up being a big nothing burger. So, again, it's, it's easy to say these things. It's harder to actually do them especially as more industries consolidate, companies gather more and more money, more and more power, and it gets harder and harder to rein them in. But uh, we need a trust-busting president. We need a new Roosevelt uh, because the balance of power in our country is way out of whack right now. So can you tell me a little bit about the Medicare expansion piece? Because that is really complicated, actually, and confusing for a lot of people. What does that entail? The, the Medicare expansion piece has been complicated in that there are several different facets of you know lowering the age that people can uh, get Medicare. They're strengthening Medicare, including vision and dental and hearing coverage. Uh, and so figuring out how big is the pot of money that Congress is working with and which priorities get included. From everything I've heard, it sounds like lowering the age is less of a priority. And part of the reason for that is that means taking on the insurance companies, because if you lower Medicare to say age 60 or age 55, that means that big insurance is losing their customer base between age 55 and age 65. And as it turns out, those are the highest prices that Americans pay for insurance is uh, older Americans that are not yet at 65. Uh, they pay the highest rates. So th those are some customers that insurance companies would like to keep. So it means taking the insurance industry dead on, and it doesn't sound like there is the will to do that. But I mean, understandably, if you are taking on big pharma, maybe you want to limit how many battles you fight at one time so that you don't get overwhelmed. Because at least for right now, the amount of TV ads that I've seen from big pharma alone bad-mouthing this policy is just amazing. I was on a plane the other day and it felt like every other ad I saw on this plane was talking about, oh, poor Big Pharma will never be able to create any new drug if we take away their profits. <laughs> and like, really? Yeah. So you're not going to create any new drugs ever unless we pay more in profit than any other country in the world. It's somehow our responsibility ability to give your executives car elevators and fifth mansions. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I, I am not crying at night for the poor, poor big pharma with some of the highest profit margins in the country. Uh, and, and, you know, clearly they're hurting for money, which is why they're dumping multi-million dollars on these ad campaigns. So anyways, they've already reacted to uh, this threat to their, their obscene profits. So the more industries you take on at once, the more money and lobbyists are going to be marshaled to tank the entire bill. So 
I can understand passing on the particular fight of lowering the age of Medicare. Medicare strengthening, I read something interesting about one of the issues. Uh, dentists don't really like the idea of Medicare expanding to include dental coverage because they feel like Medicare will pay lower rates than private patients do. But again, you see this short-sightedness over and over again, like the insurance companies not wanting um, enrollment to last all year, where, you know, they do just fine. They get plenty of customers this way. And dentists may feel like Medicare will offer a lower rate, but you will get so many more customers. You have to have a broader vision than just protecting your small piece of the pie. Look at growing the pie. So uh, yes, I saw that some dentists were against this for parochial concerns, but I think that they staged it out that dental coverage wouldn't kick in right away and so on. So, So we'll see. What uh, ends up coming out of the kitchen in the next few weeks uh, because they are furiously cooking away. Yeah. So you bring up a lot of really interesting points because as you were describing those ads, I was curious as to how other countries have done this, right? I mean, because all Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical companies stand to lose profits, right? And and I'm presuming that it's just because Mm -hmm. our pharmaceutical companies have so much higher profit margins than other countries. And that's what they obviously just really want to hold on to. And it's it's a really interesting debate because- There is no constituent that would support higher drug prices over legislation Mm -hmm. to lower those drug prices. So I'm just curious as to, you know, how they're making that argument to constituents and whether they're just bypassing Mm -hmm. constituents and just buying off, you know, politicians under the table, just to put it, you know, plainly. Mm -hmm. Well, the ads that I saw would take... A patient advocate, you know, maybe an actor, maybe a real person, can't really tell, saying, you know, I'm concerned that, you know, pharmaceutical companies won't be able to innovate or whatever. But the interesting thing I thought about the ad that I saw on the airplane was that it was a diabetic woman and she had uh, the insulin monitor on her arm and so on. So she's talking about the importance. But the thing is, insulin was invented Decades ago, and the people that invented it deliberately patented it for a dollar because they felt that this was a gift to mankind. So insulin is one of the most egregious examples of a drug that was invented years and years ago, and yet pharmaceutical companies jack up the margins every year until thousands of Americans are forced to ration their insulin and people die every year because of it. So really, you're going to talk about innovation (laughs) with a drug that was invented before any of your pharmaceutical execs were even alive? Their only innovation is figuring out how to rob more patients for a drug that was already in existence before any of them were alive. That's incredible. You know, I think there's something similar with the EpiPen, right? I mean, the markup, I think, Mm -hmm. is just, you know, insane with EpiPens. Right. And these, these are not new drugs. These are drugs that have already been in existence. Like if you, if you look at PharmaBro, he took a drug that already existed that somebody else invented, and then they just bought the rights to it and jacked it up 700%. So there was no innovation going on there. The only innovation was in figuring out how to rob American taxpayers. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you about healthcare broadly, since we're talking about, you know, storytelling 
And I've noticed that since, you know, probably the 2008 elections, right, the debates Mm -hmm. between Hillary Clinton and Obama, and people not fully understanding the difference between universal health care and Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they've often been conflated in debates, right? But Mm -hmm. you can reach universal health care in a lot of different ways. You can reach it through the ACA. You could reach it through Medicare Mm -hmm. for all. Do you think that's really important for constituents to understand in kind of moving this debate forward? Well, I think that the average American is just trying to live their life. They're not deep into the policy weeds. They're not figuring out this thing versus that thing. Uh, So I think that that's one of the reasons why universal health care and Medicare for all have been conflated, even though they, they don't, they aren't necessarily the same thing. And the thing is, if you look at countries around the world, there are many different ways to get to the end goal, which I think most Americans share, which is everyone should have health care. But how you get there doesn't necessarily have to be single payer, one payer. I mean, that's how Canada and the UK does it. But how Germany and Switzerland and Japan and South Korea do it, you can have very regulated private insurance companies that deliver the care. You can have one insurance company, you can have several. The point is that you have to regulate them. And the difference between America and most every other country is that insurance companies here profit off of denying care, whereas in other places like Germany and so on, they have regulations in place so that you can buy fancy care, you know, you know, your own private room in a hospital and plastic surgery and so on, you know, like things that are more extra, you can pay more for a private policy, but the basics Everyone has, and it's regulated so that insurance companies don't have the incentive to deny the health care you need so they make more money, so that you know they're driven by profits. Every other country has recognized this is a bad system, uh, but uh, we're not there yet. And the Affordable Care Act put some restraints in place. You know, mandating essential health benefits so that insurers have to cover certain procedures free of cost, mandating out-of-pocket maximums, and the different tiers of pricing so that they, they can't charge you more just because you're a woman or you have a pre-existing condition and so on. And also uh, mandating that they have to use at least 80% of your premium dollar on care, that if they uh, don't, they have to give you a rebate for the extra. So the the ACA put some guardrails in place, but still, if you look at uh, other systems in other countries, their insurance companies are not making 20% profit. Yeah. So just to go back to the reconciliation package just for a second, if that falls short, right? Mm-hmm. Is there a path through state legislatures to improve health care? Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Nevada and Colorado this year both passed a public option to uh, help lower the cost of insurance uh, through the individual health market. So you're seeing innovation on the state level because things have been so stagnant on a federal level that because of our system of government and because one entire political party has abdicated uh, doing anything about health care, you know, we've been in a stalemate since the Affordable Care Act was passed. Uh, There's been no improvements, no real changes, just more attacks. So you're seeing more innovations on a state level, like prescription drug boards to lower the cost of prescription drugs and so on. So I think you'll continue to see that, that some states have the ability and the will to go further. It is easier to fight special interests on a state level sometimes. Here in Colorado, I believe I read that the uh, insurance industry spent record amounts lobbying against the public option. And as it went through the sausage making process here, it did get watered down a lot. But 
a bill was passed here in Colorado, defeating all the special interests that were arrayed against it. So you can win on a state level sometimes where, where it's just impossibly hard on the federal level. Right. I think Democrats just need to see state legislative races as a part of the firewall, right, mm-hmm. against you know, all of these things. We have the, you know, the House, the Senate, the White House and state legislatures. So that's just why. It really matters. I mean, like you can see right now in states like Texas and Georgia where the governors have a bully pulpit and they're pushing for mandates that refuse to allow schools to um, ensure their kids are safe, that kids are wearing masks uh, until they can be vaccinated. So, uh, you know, they're scoring political points at the expense of the lives of their constituents. So it is incredibly important that people vote for their state legislators, even though these races are talked about less, it can be harder to find information and figure out who is who is good. But they make life and death decisions that af- directly affect your life. Uh, so absolutely vote all the way down the ballot. Um, so apparently you have a, a bus. Tell me about your nationwide <laughs> bus tour. <laughs> yes. That's a big deal. <laughs> so Protect Our Care had a bus tour uh, for the month of August through Labor Day weekend. We started off in Maine and we went all the way down to California and Las Vegas. We were talking about uh, lowering the cost of prescription drugs. So this was the answer to Big Pharma's big wallets. Uh, it was uh, going state to state, city to city, <laughs> sharing our personal stories and telling our legislators why we need them to vote for this. So it's not only talking about that, but also talking about uh, some of the other healthcare pieces in this bill, including lowering the cost of Affordable Care Act plans, including expanding Medicaid. So states like Texas and Florida and Georgia, where their governors and their legislators are checked out, that the people in those states will still get the healthcare they need and strengthening Medicare, including vision and dental and hearing coverage. So we just got off uh, the road and uh, it was a a really big success. I think that we reached people that hadn't necessarily heard this message before. And getting on the local news in some of these cities means that people will hear and understand that what Congress is doing right now affects their health and pay attention. So, so the bus is parked for now. I mean, yes. going to, <laughs> the bus you could have another tour. <laughs> like, you know, like, um, what is it? Um, Black Voters Matter. I mm-hmm. think they have a bus like every, you know, election cycle, every campaign cycle. I would expect so, there will be more it. buses next year, but hopefully those buses <laughs> will be fueled on healthcare reform that passed this year. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Well, Laura Packer, thank you so much for joining me. I'll be watching the reconciliation package and seeing what, you know, Healthcare Voices does next. And thank you so much for all of your work. Thank you. And if you haven't contacted your legislators yet, call your senators, call your representative, make sure they vote for Build Back Better and include all the healthcare pieces. 